comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there, full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, Adaptive Asset Allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not, all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. Instead, let Adaptive Asset Allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit RationalMF.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund. Hello and welcome to Gestalt University, hosted by Adam Butler, Mike Philbrick, and Rodrigo Gordillo of Resolve Asset Management Global. This podcast will dig deep to uncover investment truths and life hacks you won't find in mainstream media, covering topics that appeal to left-brain robots, right-brain poets, and everything in between, all with the goal of helping you reach excellence. Welcome to the journey. Mike Philbrick, Adam Butler, Rodrigo Gordillo are principals of Resolve Asset Management Global. Due to industry regulations, no funds managed or subdivised by the host will be discussed in this podcast. All opinions expressed by the host are solely their own opinion and do not express the opinion of Resolve Asset Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as basis for investment decisions. For more information, visit investresolve.com. All right, all right. Welcome to 2023 and Fridays. I love it. Happy New Year, guys. Happy Happy New Year, Year, Ron. Great to have you on and uh, get get to meet you screen to screen. Yeah, likewise. <laughs> I've been an avid consumer of your guys' content for a while, so I'm very happy to be here and uh, be able to contribute. Yeah, and we, we found Prometheus very quickly, too, coming out of the gate. And then we've had a couple of people actually uh, request that we have you on um, because I yeah. think, uh, you know, your 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 global macro mind framework um, jives a little bit with what we're doing. And, and so... Why don't you give us a little bit of, of your background and Prometheus, where you came from, what the genesis of the idea was, and where you're headed. Before you do that, I will remind everybody, this is just three dudes talking on YouTube on a Friday afternoon. This is not investment advice. So don't take it as such. But So now we can have a nice wide-ranging conversation, and that is my disclaimer for that. Back over yeah, to pro- you. Probably not the best idea to get your investment advice on YouTube, as a general note. Yeah, um, yeah so... <laughs> Um, to give you my background, um, so my name is Ahan Menon, and uh, I'm the founder and CEO of Prometheus Research. Prometheus is a systematic macro research firm dedicated to the democratization of finance. So what we do that's pretty unique at Prometheus is we spend our time trying to understand how the economy works and what's going on. And then we codify that understanding into a systematic rules-based 
framework to create dynamic portfolios. The purpose of the portfolios is to create durable return streams that can survive and potentially thrive in all environments. Now, alongside these systematic portfolios, we also offer a host of written research ranging from, you know, one page topical notes to extremely in-depth 30 page research reports on the macro outlook. Right. And the objective and the, the overarching goal is to create a holistic suite of products that can help investors of any size navigate macroeconomic cycles. Um, quick note on myself. Prior to starting Prometheus, I have a background from the institutional buy side and the retail sell side. So I started my career in macro and econ research at a hedge fund called Light Sky Macro. I followed and continued that macro research career in a different setting at a retail broker called FXDD. In 2022, the stars kind of aligned and, you know, I think it was an opportune time to start Prometheus, which is when we did. And... Um, we're a two-person research team um, and still growing. And it was an interesting time to start it, given the approach that we have. And I think that there'll be a lot of overlap in kind of how we think about things as we go through this discussion. And I'm looking forward to trying to help you know our subscribers navigate 2023. And that brings us to our conversation today, right? Yeah, yeah. And remember, everyone check out... Um... Uh, uh, on on Prometheus Research, I think it's Prometheus at Substack as well. If you want to get follow your commentary and that sort of stuff, yeah. Let's, so let's we get have that at the beginning where people can find you. Always wait till the <laughs> end, but let me let's do it at the beginning. We'll do it at the end as well, but just so people can start to scroll through, you know, your Twitter profile and and uh, subscribe and Substack as we're going. Let's get them doing that first. Awesome, I, I appreciate that. So we're you can find us in three different places. You can find us at Prometheus Macro on Twitter. You can find us uh, Prometheus-Substack or Prometheus Research uh, at Substack. And then we have uh, the new website, which uh, launched a couple of days ago. That's Prometheus-Research.com. That's awesome. Yeah. So I, I'm going to kick this off, Rod, if you don't mind, and just give you a kind of a big, broad question to start, uh, Ahan. What is the CIO dilemma in 2023? Um. I think the hardest thing for most people is going to be to figure out whether you are going to have what has been a fairly anomalous year in 2022 continue to play out. And so I think the big challenge is we've been in an environment and we'll explain more about the characterization of this environment, but what we've called stagflationary nominal growth with tightening liquidity conditions, right? And that has been an extremely tough environment for any kind of traditional asset allocation. Now, I think the question for 23 is whether we remain in said environment or we have an interim period where we transition into something a little bit more different and perhaps more familiar. I like that. I like that. So walk us through your framework with trying to figure that navigation out and and, and also, you know, where you're seeing sort of contrary evidence in different asset classes are you seeing sort of the the bond market even within itself is saying a couple of different things the equity market saying some things the commodity market is saying some different things so how are you processing all of that through your macro framework at prometheus to try and come to some conclusions and at the moment where are you seeing big bets small bets kind of be more conservative how are you how are you seeing all that come through your lens 
Yeah, so I think maybe we can take the the framework aspect first and then kind of delve mm-hmm. into the current context because uh, I think you guys will appreciate this. We have a good deal of work that we've done and time that we spent in kind of developing how we think about things. And I think that's usually much more value than what we think at any given point in time, right? Um, so when it comes to framework, there are three separate things. And so the first is, the macro framework. The next is the investment framework, which is like how you weaponize that macro framework, right? And then the third is, you know, how you kind of reiterate your research process. And um, so let, maybe we start with the macro framework because I think that's probably most relevant. Um, the way we, the, the macro framework and the way we think about the world is that the, there's, the economy is the sum of two parts, right? And it's the real economy and the financial economy. So the real economy is just... Um, the sum of the factors of production, just labor and capital, right? And these are just very real tangible things. They're your and my skills. They're things that we make. And on top of this real economy sits a financial economy, which is just um, a sum of um, money, credit, money and credit, which is just assets and liabilities. And these two things, while interrelated from time to time, can get really out of whack because the ability of the financial economy to expand and contract is much stronger than the real economy because it's just a bunch of contractual payments between participants. And this, and now while these things can get really out of whack for a while, there tends to be a snapback effect, which usually happens as the financial economy kind of contracts and come ba- comes back to some kind of equilibrium with the real economy. So you can imagine them kind of in dynamic equilibrium. And that snapback effect and that expansion away from each other is the business cycle. And as investors and economic participants, what we're trying to do is we're trying to manage risks surrounding that, that business cycle. And so the way we think of understanding the business cycle is that it is characterized by three major components. Right. The, if you if you can get a handle of these three things, you probably have a good idea of what's happening with the business cycle. These three things are growth, inflation, and liquidity. So growth is just real output. It's the output of you know um, goods and services in the economy, and these are tangible things. So they um, they are different from inflation, which is really just the movement in the price level. Right. Finally, liquidity, a little bit more esoteric, but when we're talking about liquidity, we're talking about funding liquidity, which just refers to the price and quantity of money and cash-like assets in the system. And so if you can stack all these things together and understand how they're going to evolve over, say, the next 6 to 12 months, you have a really good chance of understanding how the cycle is going to evolve, which means you'll have a good understanding of how capital is likely to flow. And that's what we're trying to do, really. So the idea is to have some sense of how these conditions, these macroeconomic conditions are going to develop. And we want to allocate pro-cyclically with these conditions, right? And I think that the benefit of thinking like that is twofold. One, if you, now this is all obviously conditional upon you being right. Um, now, if if you do happen to be right, one, it minimizes your chances of being in massive drawdowns in any particular asset. Right. And the second is if you happen to be on the right side of bets, while a lot of market participants on the wrong side of bets, you can have very asymmetrical payoffs. And I think the combination of those two things is really what sets up a good and durable sort of return stream. And so that's kind of how we think about macro broadly and investment in that context. And we can get into other parts of like how we think about. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Can I double click on that liquidity? I think you mentioned something very 
Sure, let's do it. It is a very esoteric area. It certainly is for me. This is it. Those three. We we talk a lot about growth and inflation at Resolve, but liquidity has always been. <coughs> excuse me. <coughs> Just inhaled <coughs> a little bit of water there. Uh, liquidity has always been fascinating to me. It, it is it is an important aspect of what we do as well. But you know, how do you differentiate sentiment liquidity? Uh, how do you how do you guys look at liquidity? What metrics do you need to really understand in order to understand I, what I guess is is just the flux, right? Are we in positive flux? Are we in negative flux? Are we in neutral flux? Broadly speaking, in the broad market, right? And is yeah. that is that quantitative tightening and quantitative easing? What does that mean? You know, wh- what do you tell us about your view of liquidity and how you how you view it and how you measure it and how you um, t- take I don't know, take uh, um, any sort of metrics from it. Got it. So I I think that, you know, there are many different types of liquidity. And generally, what's more typical is to focus on market liquidity, right? So, you know, you look at various measures of what's happening with markets. The way we kind of try to look at it is we try to take it to a fundamental place where we're trying to think of what is the dry powder that facilitates future economic and market activity, right? And so you can think of it as the stock and as a flow and then there's the flux, right? Of of cash-like assets in the economy. So what, what traditionally has been a very good metric for liquidity has been the price of money because that's been the primary level that central banks have pulled to increase the availability of credit in the economy, right? And so if I we decrease interest rates, we've typically had better liquidity conditions, which facilitates economic expansion. And when we do the inverse, we have a contraction. Um, but when you run out of kind of the ability to move interest rates up and down, there still remains the ability and which always existed. It's not that it only exists once you get to the zero lower bound you have the ability to inject cash and cash-like assets. Now, I think when you start thinking of, okay, we understand the intuition, how do I actually look at this, right? Um, the way we do it is as follows. We, we look at the, the two major liquidity creators. There is the U.S. sovereign, which is basically the sum of the Federal Reserve and the fiscal authorities. And then you have commercial banks. And between these two parties, you have the highest and most liquid form of assets. And so when you track conditions and how they evolve in that ecosystem, that's really how you understand what's happening with liquidity conditions. So are you going into how much the Fed is printing, how much the, the central banks are buying, what the repo markets are doing? And adding all these things up to come up with a positive, neutral, negative, negative flux. This is just my lingo. You can use whatever lingo yeah. you want. But is that are those the the places you're looking at for that liquidity? Essentially, yeah. So I think an important fact here, or an important nuance, is kind of that what ends up happening with this liquidity analysis is like people end up siloed in one part. Right? So either you look at the Fed or you look at the Treasury or like I'm a commercial bank guy, you know, you end up looking at one of these things. But what probably matters is the sum of all of these put together. And so maybe if we talk a little bit. So the, the most important player, obviously, in all of this is the U.S. government. Right. And 
the reason that it is is because you know its liabilities the us government's liabilities are the most pristine assets that we have in the financial system so now when i want to look at what we try to do is we net out holdings between the central bank and us you know fiscal authorities to come up with what an estimation of the aggregate us government balance sheet is which is like we're looking at the aggregate liabilities of the government which are the aggregate assets of the private sector and so then if we go down and we look at the more the lower maturities which have less price variation because they're less exposed to duration we're essentially looking at the stock of the most pristine assets in the economy and what we find over time is as the stock of assets has increased it facilitates activity in other places now the problem with liquidity generally is that it's fungible right so you know i can sell my t bills and i can buy buy a car i can sell my t bills and i can you know buy i can buy equities and so what we do know though about liquidity is that if there is an immense amount of it the potential for economic activity is quite large and so, vice versa okay so so i understand broadly yeah. i also have seen and and more red decades worth of liquidity injection into a central bank i.e. japan with very little impact on that on those financial markets and in the last few years we've seen a large amount of liquidity injection that actually worked to create inflation and so how do you differentiate kind of monetary you know just printing the money putting money in banks bank accounts and how do you differentiate the liquidity that's actually going to impact the real economy and and, and bump prices up yeah so i i think that's a that's a, that's a really good question so if you think about QE at its core by itself it's just maturity transformation so we have let's you know forget the real economy for a second all you're doing really is you're coming in and you're creating liquid reserve balances and you're trading out longer duration assets and so that mechanism if you actually think about it or look through economic accounts it has no reflection in economic activity now what is a potent mix is having very large deficits and using QE to air quotes monetize these deficits and these deficits actually have an impact on economic activity that literally there in the accounts so i think that it's fairly straightforward in an accounting sense but in a broader sense i think what the hope was with QE was that we could create financial conditions that were so conducive that it would generate activity um but the problem was that the outlook for activity of economic participants wasn't adequate to just you know create this massive levering in the system and create this robust expansion so now when we're thinking about what happened in 2020 right as opposed to what happened with Q- QE and you know the opposite QT what you had was you actually had fiscal authorities come in and inject income live and into the economy and so once that money makes its way into the economy for a period of time it may be saved right but as we so maybe we actually go through the example because i think that's the best way to probably do this um so we had we had the pandemic lockdowns right and in the pandemic lockdowns you basically had output disappear almost overnight and in response to that the fed and treasury came together the fed said we're going to buy an unlimited amount of bonds and the treasury came in and said we're going to send you a lot of money now output 
still didn't increase, but income increased. And number one, we want to register that that's an anomalous thing. Output and income usually tend to coincide and rise together. Now, when you have you know these income injections, for a time or a small time period, you actually had the money saved. So profits still suffered, activity still suffered. We were in a deflationary kind of situation. But as we reopened, more and more of this money got spent into the economy, which resulted in profits being higher. And the ability to reinvest became strong once again. And once we began to really reopen, you had a demand to increase output and you started having this money turn over and be spent into the economy. And so that's the real difference. The difference is that when fiscal authorities can actually inject economy in, can inject liquidity into the into economic activity, but quantitative tight, quantitative easing tends to be relegated to financial markets. Okay, and so that that latter one helps us with understanding inflation. Mm-hmm. Um, the former one helps us maybe understand financial markets. Uh, right, and you could argue that they're both a kind of inflation; they're just different types, right? So, you know, if yeah, one you one feels if you think more of, growthy than the other, right? One feels one more else. growthy than the other, and yeah. I think that that's just a distributional effect, right? So, you have a lot of people that you know buy stuff, buy day-to-day objects, and but you don't have everyone trying to buy equities every day, and you know, the concentration of people that own and buy equities is a small fraction of the population. So, if everyone owned equities, we'd hate it when they go up. <laughs> I, yeah, I suppose it's been a bit of a Keynesian affair with the fiscal side, right? So you yeah. have a shock, you inject sure. a bunch of money, and then it's got to flow through the system, which takes a while. Sure, and, and I, I think that that's the the problem that we're having, right? So you have the problem. So you know, this is kind of getting into the inflation issue, which is that. The Fed and Treasury came together to do something, right? And the Fed and Treasury came together, created a lot of liquidity, so they injected money and credit into the system. But now you have the Fed alone trying to reverse these conditions. So if you think about the mechanism that would be needed to actually tamp down on this inflation really quick, it would be taxation, right? So if I inject $100 into a closed system and I say, um, or, you know, the only way to really erode the value of it is to one reduce the number of dollars, right? So we have we have less money, or we have inflation, which is basically just a reduction in the value of it. And so I think the problem that we're facing is that the Fed doesn't actually have the adequate tools to combat this effectively, and so they have to really lean on the tools that they have very aggressively. So what are the tools that they really have? They can work through financial conditions. So they have to. The problem we have today is not a credit problem. The problem we have today is a money problem. And the Fed isn't well equipped to deal with a money problem. Fiscal authorities are. So the Fed has to lean so hard on financial conditions to bring us back to some sort of equilibrium that it's causing all the issues that we're seeing today. The, the fiscal side is also complicated by votes, right? The, yeah. the fiscal side is not a pure, sort, and, and not that the monetary side is pure either, but from the perspective of not being polluted by the prevailing sort of zeitgeist or vote getting. So there's going to have to be, or there will be some fiscal stimulus that's going to be sort of pointed and directed at certain, I think you referenced this sort of different strata within, within um, the populace. And so that also has to be factored in by the monetary 
uh, side of the equation. You're going to have to do targeted sort of fiscal spending in order to um, help those groups that are impacted at a larger level. And meanwhile, you've got this sort of blanket monetary policy happening. Right. And I think that that's, I think more often than not, monetary policy and policymakers, um, they kind of assume nothing is going to happen with, with fiscal policy in a meaningful way on the timeline that they want. Um, right. So they really have to lean on the tools that they have, and they have pretty blunt tools. Um, and if you really put what's happening today into into that context, right, we have high inflation, wages getting squeezed, real output, real income getting squeezed. And in that environment, it, it's not going to be a popular thing to tax people. Oh, so, God. No. Well, this is part of the part of the equation. This is the right? problem. This, and is, this, is, this is part of the This uh, is why the Fed alone couldn't get inflation up when they wanted to. They needed a massive disaster for fiscal spending to actually come into play. And of course, they did too much of it. They were, and it was going to be much worse if they if they didn't get clawed back once uh, negotiations began. So it's an interesting thing, the politics side of things and what the Fed has to do in an aggressive way to control the situation. So now the Fed has done something very aggressive. A lot of people we've had on our podcast consider it to be outrageously aggressive. You have interesting discussions between the two co-CIOs of Bridgewater as to what their view of what the Fed is likely to have done and continue to have to do uh, between they've done too much and it's going to break the system in an utter recession to they're they're going to pull back way too early and are going to have to do this over and over again a few times. So, you know, this is and both lead to recession. The question is how how badly have their aggressive policies for because of what you explained, how badly have they and are, are they going to impact the economy? So what are your thoughts on recession here going forward? Oh, yeah. Who, who wins? Dot plot or yield curve? <laughs> <laughs> so um, I, I think that um, the, the way to think through what, you know, the, the recession or, or whether or not, I think it's, it's probably more meaningful to talk through how we get to recession relative sure. to whether we get there or not. Mm-hmm. And obviously we'll end up at whether I think that we're going to get there. Yeah, well, um, let's, uh, right, let's go through the, th- we've talked a little bit about the liquidity side. So I yeah. guess now what Rodrigo is leading us to is let's talk about the growth and inflation side. Yeah. Uh, so I, yeah. Right, Rod? Is that where you're Yeah, yeah. I, I'm, yeah. I'm happy for uh-huh, to let us, to lead us down the path. Yeah. I want to know, I'm dying to know what he thinks. At, uh, <laughs> okay. Recession. Let's go. Um, so I think when it comes to recession, um, maybe, maybe you know, so we, we started with the context in terms of what happened and how we got to inflationary conditions. And, um, Last year, we had the situation of stagflationary nominal growth and tightening liquidity. And what we've typically seen is that this environment of stagflationary nominal growth is usually one that precedes a transition to stagflation. And the way that usually happens is through the following chain. So you tend to have profits and real profits contract or come under pressure, come under pressure. And as a result, when so if you think about the purpose of profits it is to reduce your cost of capital right so when i redeploy but in an inflationary environment when i redeploy my capital i actually get less and less per unit so as a result there is an increasing amount of pressure on my ability to produce more right and even on the consumer side you experience the same thing so over time you end up in a situation where production and output begins to suffer 
right? And the only level that businesses have to maintain their nominal activity is prices. And they will push that as much as they can. So as a result, you end up in a situation where you have kind of a shrinking nominal pie with a faster shrinking real pie, right? And you end up in a situation where profits can begin to contract. And that's kind of where we are now. We're at a situation where profits may or may not contract, and that's what everyone's really focused on. And when you have this profit contraction, businesses do what they, they, they need to do to maintain or sustain profits or try to claw them back, which is they go out and first they begin by adjusting the, the, number, of hour, the number of hours their workers work, right? Or they'll try to adjust the number of wa- the amount of wages. That's a lot harder, right? And then the last thing that they'll do is they'll start firing people. Now, what the issue is, is that while on a per business basis, that might be the most logical thing to do, when you do that, at the economy-wide level, you suddenly take out employees, right? And employees are probably the most vital part of income and spending in the economy because they both generate income and they generate spending. So when I take out employees, when a business tries to protect its profits and when business and aggregate try to claw back their profits by reducing labor, you actually end up in a situation where they end up exacerbating conditions, income and top line disappear, and you transition into a recession. So... Where are we in kind of this template of things happening, right? In 2022, we had the first leg where real profits kind of contracted in Q1 and Q2, and so did nominal profits. Q3, they got a little bit better. And as a result, initially, we, as we went into Q1, Q2, we actually had production extremely strong. But these dynamics that we discussed started to play out. And over Q3, Q4, we've actually seen production and output drop precipitously. Now, the question ahead of us is, one, when and if profits are going to begin to contract meaningfully? And from there, will that contraction be adequate to catalyze firing, right? And once we hit that point, that's when we really start talking about a real recession, right? And what's important to contextualize here is that you don't actually need an outright contraction of the labor market to generate a recession. You need a softening of the labor market. And why that is, is if you think about aggregate incomes, right, it's just a function of the number of people employed or the growth of employment, plus the the growth of wages, real wages, and the number of hours that, you know, people are working for those wages. And so if you look at two and three, which are the hours worked and the the wages, they're actually already in contraction. And the only thing that we need now is we we need employment to soften a little bit and the aggregate goes into contraction. And that's kind of the trajectory. What we have to figure out in 2023 is how fast and how long is it going to take us to move through this process? Well, and do we get the immaculate disinflation that I keep hearing about, right? right. This right. this idea that employment rates stay steady, but oh, job openings, they contract, yeah. but you know nothing else happens. And it's, I guess it's appropriately named. It is right. a crazy thing. I, I think when it comes to inflation, a lot of the inflation discussion can be kind of couched in a, in a similar type of setting, right? And so when we're thinking about future inflation, what we need to think about is how 
nominal activity is going to move over the next six months and whether it can sustain itself at the current pace and if it cannot, right? And I think that when it when it comes to thinking about how inflation is going to evolve over, say, the next six or um, 12 months, what we need to do is we need to look into the components of inflation to understand how those things are going to evolve. So there is typically this kind of, you know, on the, and we I will probably touch a little bit on um, the inflation print that's coming up next week. That's always an exciting topic, right? Um, so when we're thinking about inflation, what we want to think about is the, the broad categories, right? So there are four categories that you really want to look at. There's housing. Um, there are services, ex-housing. Housing is usually counted as a service because people pay rents for the most part. So there's services, ex-housing. Housing is the biggest component of inflation. And then you have goods, right, which are divided into durable and non-durable goods. Now, the combined trajectories of these two things is going to determine where you land, right? And so when we think about housing, housing is largely a function of just what's happening with home prices. And so to get a little bit into the weeds of this, the, the way that housing inflation is calculated is that what the what we do is we go out and we look at what ha- is happening to housing prices, right? So the way that it's imputed in CPI is that you take a sample of households that rotates every six months, right? And what you do is you go and ask them, hey, like, have your rents changed or have they not? Right. So first off, there's an anchoring bias. You only report, you, you know, you'll you look at your last rent, you know, you, your, your last survey reading and you'll say, yeah, it was about there somewhere in and around that number. And so if you think about what is required to cause people to actually report massive changes on a, you know, between every six months, you need to have a precipitous decline in housing. And, you know, there needs to be, you know, front of the newspapers because this number isn't an actual number. It's based on what owner's equivalent rent is, which is basically if I have a house, what I would charge for it. So the problem is that the sample, right, because of this six-month rotation period, doesn't fully rotate for an entire year. So as a result, what you see in housing prices doesn't actually make its way into the index for, let's call it about 12 months to 18 months. It depends on how big the changes are in the smoothing process. So... What we know off the cuff is that we're likely in a situation where there's still a little bit of housing inflation ahead of us, right? And that'll taper off, but it'll take a long time for that to sort of come down. The next component is medical services. And now this is a bit, well, not medical services, services at large, and then the largest component of that is medical services. Now, what has happened, which has created a big deflationary pulse, is that last year, so we have services spending and sorry, services inflation within that we have medical services, which is the biggest part. You had a change in the computation of insurance premiums, right? Medical insurance premiums. And as a result, you had this big, this massive, like completely unusual drop in medical inflation, right? And now the question is, how much is that is that drop going to continue to weigh on services inflation? What I will say is that it's not as clear cut. What we do know is that grid large, we're probably going to see a stable and steady kind of undercurrent in services inflation. But the problem is that there is a smoothing process applied even here, which means that this one big drop in November is probably going to permeate 
through the entire series for the next 12 months. So, you know, net net, probably a little bit of moderation there. Now, when we go and start looking at goods, it's a little bit more of an interesting story. Because when we look at the goods economy, there are durable goods and non-durable goods. And when we look at non-durable goods, they largely reflect commodity prices that I know that you guys are all too familiar with, right? And the pass-through from those is relatively quick. So what, what ends up happening is what happens from goods, what ends up happening with commodity inflation or commodity prices ends up passing through to these you know, non-durable areas in a period of three to six months. So if we have basically aggregate commodities, you know, so if we look at ags, we look at industrials, we look at um, you know, energy commodities, and we stack those together and try to figure out which are the most relevant to non-durables, what we find is that within about three months, you tend to have you know, some sort of pass-through. And that is mixed again. And the last one is probably where we see the most decline, which is durable goods, right? And the main items in, in that basket are things like furnishing and, um, and cars, right? Those are the transport at, at large. And those, those areas. So when you think about the Fed's tightening, right? The Fed's tightening has the most impact on this part of the economy. Right? The reason is because these parts of the economy tend to be the most levered, both in terms of their purchases and their creation. Right, So if I have to you know, start an auto plant, I probably need to borrow some money, which means that if rates are rising, I'm not going to be able to finance you know, a, a big plant. So what ends up happening is that you know, these are the most cyclically sensitive. So when people talk about cyclical and, and you know, acyclical, like these tend to be the most cyclically sensitive areas. And we've seen in these kind of, you know, durable goods segments, and you also had uh, COVID-19 specific effects, which we can talk about. But when you, when you look at what is the most affected by the Fed's policies, it's this area. And that's where we're seeing disinflation. That's where we're seeing deflation in a lot of places. And so the combination of these things nets out to an inflation trajectory that is not crazy like 2023, but it's also not a good one, right? So the way we're looking at it is we're probably going to have a stabilization of inflation in a band. That band is a pretty big one. It's probably between 4 and 5%. But what's important to realize is that that's still double of the Fed's target. Target, yeah. Yeah, it's an interesting thing. It's the difference between cyclical and secular inflation, right? And I think yeah. there's good arguments to be made that we're in a different secular inflation period, but probably peaked on a cyclical basis a couple months ago. And and we're going to see how, how that's going to play out over time. But, um, you know, Mike and I have talked about the inflation volatility prior to 1981. Well, was it for like it's over 4%. A standard deviation and Not, 91 but yeah, yeah it's, is it it's 91 five, yeah, it's, then, yeah 91 it's like five percent call it 4.8 or something like that and then you're looking at like 1.6 up to 2020 yeah. right so we're likely going to see a lot more volatility around that number as um as we see more you know one thing i would add to that though is that you know for context you also prior to that period you actually had a larger contrib contribution from industrial components of the economy 
relative to services components of the economy. And so if you think about how inflation passes through the supply chain of the economy, right, it starts with like the most volatile components of inflation are these energy kind of areas, right? These energy commodity kind of areas because they're contractual agreements that get mark to market every single day. Right. But as you start making your way up the complexity chain, you know, so as you start getting towards services, right, we we basically take every other cost as inputs and then we, you know, charge prices, right, as service providers. And so I think the stability of inflation also kind of reflects the kind of change in that kind of structural feature. But no, I, I do agree with you when it comes to general, like experiencing more inflation instability just as a function of larger monetary and fiscal volatility, right? Like, and if you think about the way this cycle has worked, we've we've seen like a cycle and a half in three years. Um, so I, 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 I am definitely partial also to the inflation volatility argument. But, but that's a really great point though, really nuanced point in that the economies of the world have changed dramatically from that period of what, you know, pre-1991 going back 50 years and then thinking about the way economies have evolved with technology taking something from nothing right and then producing content google maps a a number of items that we've had in technological revolution that are actually not in they're deflationary and they don't actually require any sort of stuff if you will the stuff that they require is innovation and the innovation leads to some sort of profit margin, which is a really interesting impact or effect that would, and 1991 is an interesting time frame as you, as the internet evolves into that period of time. And you have these, this period of innovation that, that actually doesn't require stuff to create profits. Well, it's so I, I'll, I'll push I, I, back. Yeah. I'll push back sure, a sure. on that. As, I mean, in, in, once you start de- having to deal with inflation, or disinflation or deflation, you will see how quickly service prices go down and become volatile. And I'll tell you this from just being in Latin America, you know, it, it really is about the rate of change and it doesn't matter whether you're a, a commodity producer or a doctor. Uh, you'll, you, <laughs> I've seen changes in health services in Latin America go up and down wildly depending on whether we're in a deflationary or inflationary environment. So. I think the 1991, I think that's the beginning of the great moderation. It has a lot more to do with throwing bodies at the problem, demographics. Um, yes, the, the everything that has to do with the internet and, and kind of readjusting mm. to that, having a, a big deflationary push. But once we have demographics change, which is what we're seeing, we're having... Uh, nationalization of a lot of industries. You know, I'm talking to a lot of guys on island here that used to produce in China. Now we're going to the U.S. and, and Mexico to get e- equal amount of pricing, maybe a little higher, right? That It's just going to be a different world and it might affect services as well. Right? I mean, services being, we, we all have uh, uh, all of our, we are 100% a service industry, Mike, and we have gotten everybody raise their prices on us really aggressively this year. Right. 10, no, no, I, Rod, I, as I said, it, it's a bit, it's nuanced. Yeah. It's a really interesting angle that Ahan brings up, which I think has some factor that's why, in it. I that's also, why we're charging 4 and 40 next year, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also think it's interesting how if you're thinking about businesses to buy, subscription businesses that have a, 
you know, almost a no cost of capital or an interesting thing to buy, like a music subscription, right? Obviously that can be ratcheted up and, and you've got new music to produce. Okay. That costs some amount of money. I don't know what it costs, but when you think about all the old catalogs, that's all built. So a very easy way to hedge inflation and a pricing mechanism would be to buy businesses that, you know, don't really have a cost of increasing uh, the cost of their uh, goods sold doesn't really increase, right? They just mark it up with inflation because everybody's used to inflation. Anyway, it's a bit of a spur on this topic, so I don't want to get too far <laughs> off of it. I, I apologize, but it, it's an interesting. No, it's uh, it's it's an interesting thing, and uh, you know, just to go back to what you were saying, we actually did a little bit of work to try and understand this, and I, I think that there is something to um, the fact that the price decreases that you see in um, in technology do not adequately reflect the computational efficiencies that you've generated so you know that talking about that 91 period so i th- i think that one thing that everyone you know that was focused on inflation during like the 2010s was really fixated on was like what what are the statistics missing right and this was really something that was kind of at the forefront that we probably are ga- gaining computational efficiencies that just don't get captured in traditional statistics in terms of how how much cheaper a computer has become. And um, that probably has some degree. With, when it comes to the inflation volatility, I think that it's harder for services to have... Like, I think the volatility is asymmetric, right? So I, I, think, I think that you are able to... Um, Prices tend to be sticky and inflation tends to be sticky. And you can have, you know, service prices rise dramatically, right? But it's very hard for people to demand less. And uh, so I think that that kind of balance of things is also important when you think about the goods versus services economy, where you can actually mark down goods easier than you can probably mark down a service. And so when you're thinking about inflation volatility in like a period like the 70s, where you have an industrial economy versus now where you have a services-oriented economy, you probably have more upside volatility relative to like a contraction. So you probably have higher stable inflation with some shocks to the upside relative to seesawing of inflation, if that makes sense. It does. We'll see how it goes, Ahan. We'll yeah. Put a, we'll put a penny on that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, mean, I just I, like look I'm at definitely not. the the volat. You, you just said something very interesting. Um, you, when it comes to services, you know, it's easy to increase but tough to to reduce without giving them more. Right? They're going to demand more services. And yeah. here we are. Let's look at the streamers. Right? Has Netflix gotten better for us or worse for us? Do we now? I used to pay seven eight ninety nine to get Netflix. Now I pay. 16 bucks for for disney it's a slightly different it's a slightly different conversation though because the the production of movies is is has a cost my my it's just there is there's competition and there there's competition we're getting less uh in in a lot of services um and i think that you'll see if there is a deflationary bus that you'll that those those services will come down drastically as well if you know what i've seen in latin america is true but but it'll be interesting i don't know i'm not 100 percent sure but i'm le- i'm leaning toward that the volatility on the downside at times will be drastic even in the services area we'll have to 
we'll have to sure. See. I, I so, mean, I, I don't think any of us are in the business of figuring out what's going to happen over the next 10 years, right? Yeah. We, we have ideas, but I don't think we can do much with it. So let's talk more short term then. Um, yeah. You know, well, did we, we cover are, growth? We've... Did we cover the growth pillar yet? Yeah, like, I think so. Liquidity, inflation, we've got yeah. growth. There is none. It's all burning heap of trash. Yeah. Okay, got it. <laughs> well, with all with the everything that we've laid out, it's been an interesting year last year where many people, unfortunately, uh, came to the conclusion that and bonds correlating was completely unforeseen. That, that, that's never happened before in history. And obviously, it just hasn't happened in their investment lifetime, right? Um, there's some mechanisms that we can look at in order to understand why equities and bonds went down together. And the question is, what, where do we go from here? How, how do we think the bond complex is going to act going forward, given what we experienced recently? Can I add, can I add one little thing uh, sure. on this but before? Just because this has it. happened before, right? Having bonds and stocks go down together has happened in 1969 and 1931. And both of these events preceded significant change in the value of money. Right, 69 preceded 1971, where we went off the gold standard. And 1931 was followed by 1939 and the involvement in 1933 and the US confiscation of gold um, to back its currency. So each time we've had a significant dislocation like this, within a couple of years, there has been pretty one was to confiscate gold and go to the gold standard and the other was to go off the gold standard so it's yeah. a, it i mean I, i'm not sure that that like that's a sample size of two and i'm not saying that we're going to have that certain thing happen but it's happened twice and when it has happened it's not been the harbinger of great news well depending on who you are right so if you're a passive investor is probably not great. If you're a more active investor and are positioning yourself for these types of outcomes, yeah, you've got dispersion, you've got a lot of different outcomes, and you've got a lot of opportunity in front of you. So with that, that's the setup. No, no, I'll, no I'll doubt, no doubt that you, uh, that Shiba Inu is the next uh, monetary case. <laughs> it's a great shift. Hey, hey, hey! Elon don't, don't, don't knock my Shiba. <laughs> so yeah, right. I, I think we we you know if we think kind of about bonds and the, the bond complex at large. Um, obviously, well, maybe not obvious to some, right? I think that this 2022's performance of stocks and bonds drawing down at the same time was something very unforeseen in the industry. But I think that it was just a function of the fact that bonds and stocks have a very similar inflation bias, right? And so if you think through, you know, kind of the original all-weather framework that Bridgewater had put out within that complex, right, or with of those different outcomes that you could have of growth and inflation, you just had a situation which was, you know, completely negative for both. So if you think about stocks, stocks like, you know, falling inflation and so do so do bonds. And when you put them together, you have something that's neutral to growth. It doesn't matter what's happening to growth. So as long as inflation is stable, right, and you don't have a high amount of inflation volatility, which is usually, you know, which results in inflation being the primary driver of asset markets and asset market pricing, you kind of make it out okay, no matter what. But I think that what most people didn't realize is that having that 60-40 bias portfolio was just this one big bet, right? 
it was this one big bet that for a really long time, inflation is just going to keep coming down lower and lower and lower. And maybe it's just volatility of inflation, like you know, you noted, keeps compressing. And so if you have a situation like 2023, where you had inflation volatility was just off the charts, right? I believe, you know, um, in March, we had a 1.2% month-over-month inflation rate. You know, you just haven't seen anything like that in a long time. So as a result, you just have a very difficult environment for traditional assets. And also, if you think about from a flow kind of perspective, right, if a very large section of the population, the investment population, owns the 60-40, right, and they are explicitly or implicitly targeting some level of volatility or drawdown, as these assets kind of get hurt together, for me to maintain my target volatility or drawdown, I actually need to sell down both assets at the same time. And so you have this self-reinforcing, really bad situation. Inflation keeps surprising to the upside. And I guess the question is, is that going to continue? And so what we're seeing based on our tracking of economic conditions is that we expect inflation to stabilize in a smaller band relative to where it was in relative to the variation we saw in 2022. But what we're also expecting to see is we're expecting these dominoes that we laid out for growth, which start with profits, goes to production, and then goes to labor, and then which eventually results in a recession. We expect these dominoes to cause a contraction in real activity. And so what we're likely to see over the course of 23 is that we will go from a year where inflation volatility was the primary driver of asset moves to one where growth volatility is likely the primary driver of asset moves. And as a result, you are more likely to catch an interim bond bid than you than you were in 2022. Now, this isn't the, the, this isn't me coming out and saying, oh, yeah, from now, bonds are back to normal. That's really not the case because we could continue to sustain inflation at a much higher level. And also, it largely depends on how the Fed will react in the event that we actually do have a recession. Because if you think about the kind of recession we're going to have, it's going to be a stagflationary one, right? Because it's unlikely that given current conditions and given current conditions in the services sector, you're going to see just this immaculate disinflation, right? So as a result, you probably have positive inflation and strongly positive inflation as you go into a growth contraction. And navigating that, navigating those dynamics is going to be what determines what happens to bonds. But as we see it right now, the initial conditions are in place for bonds to have a better year given, given, we go into an actual recession. Yeah. I mean, so it's, that's, such it's, a, that's such an interesting point. Like this is such a difficult period to try to make predictions, if you will, because it's so path dependent. We're not ex- Have you guys have frozen on me? Am I still no, here? No, no, no. I'm, I'm, oh, I'm here. Okay. Yeah. So have we, have we lost a Han? I don't know, but you're talking to me, baby. Keep going. Yeah, I like. I I hope I, but I mean, it's just so path dependent that depending on how things actually work out, and then depending on how the Fed views those items through whatever lens they they tend to want to look through, and then you've got 
some sort of fiscal overlay, it, it's just, it's almost impossible to try and say with any kind of certainty, this is the path we're on because the path is so dependent on actions. But I'm, yeah. Mechanistically, you can understand what happened in the beginning of last year, right? Mechanistically, it was sure. rates, the rate of change of rates, which is kind of the most important aspect here, went higher. They raised rates higher than we've seen since 1994, right? So when you see mm-hmm. that aggressive change in rates, the contraction or the reduction in returns for equities and bonds together comes at, a, at the discount rate, right? That's, that's, Step one, yeah. both of them come down together. Present value discount mechanism True. tells us that the prices should bo- of both things should be down. For the previous 40 years, we've seen a slow mechanistic, like secular reduction in interest rates, which again, fixed income. It is a fixed amount of income. I mean, mm-hmm. A new set of income comes in at a lower price, and then your old income is worth more, right? From the 8% volatility, 8% inflation. If that is indeed the interim peak and we're starting to go down, you might actually see from a present value discount mechanism, bonds begin well, to, to be more here, attractive the, right now, right? Here's, but here's I'm going to get to your point yeah. about like, okay. path dependency, Yeah. right? So again, I think short term, what we may be saying is that peak inflation, a reduction of, uh, of inflation possibly means a reduction of rates, but how much can we go down? Can bonds offset growth shocks? Because now we're, we've gone from inflation shock or rate shock mm-hmm. to now maybe yeah. we're dealing with a growth shock. And in a growth shock, you would expect people you expect people to move away from equities to get the higher yields and bonds and begin to act as an offset, assuming that rates remain the same here, that inflation remains the same here. Sorry. And so you might see mechanistically bonds and equities be non-correlated momentarily. The question really becomes is how low can, can we take rates? Uh, bond rates if inflation remains stubbornly high, right? So there well, is, there might be is, a limit as to the, or, or a, uh, uh, a floor. So this is part of, that. part of the, my, my quip about what's right is the dot plot, right? Or the yield curve, right? So you have yeah. fed governors saying five plus long time. Mm-hmm. You have the yield curve saying, you know, two years for something, but going out further, it's less. Yeah. So that has implications and somebody's right and somebody's wrong. So, you know, in a world where um, the, the um, in a world where they say, well, you know what, we can't achieve 2% inflation, we're going to target three or four, that has significant implications for bond valuations, obviously. Yeah. Um, but if they do that, equities probably are fine because you're getting more liquidity in the system for those, for those other assets. If in fact you do keep it at five and you say we're going to get to two, that has significant implications for growth and a growth trajectory and an earnings contraction as well as a multiple contraction on top of the earnings contraction. <laughs> and that, that leads, I think, to a, a more, um, a less sort of traditional bond stock relationship. Um, I think I think if you look at the 70s, you mentioned a few key periods, a few key years. But if you actually look at the correlation between bonds and equities for that whole decade, it was quite tight. Right. It had mm-hmm. they were they moved in tandem just at different levels of risk. If you're c- comparing the 10 year treasury with uh, with equity markets. And, you know, a lot of it probably has has to do with the inflation uh, issues and the and how high rates went during that decade. And so it's not. It's not out of the question that we're going to see a long period of general high correlation. Almost, but, but even even in the seventies, even in even hey in guys, the 70s, right? Hey. hey man, 
Welcome back. Sorry about that. Yeah. Even in the seventies, you're gonna you saw periods when there was big, abrupt growth shocks, negative growth shocks, where treasuries yeah. acted as an offset, and then went back to this high correlation number that we haven't seen ourselves in forty years, right? So I think there's gonna be if if history is any indication, there's gonna be, uh, come the correlation between bonds and equities is gonna come and go. But probably if inflation is stubborn, it's going to lean towards higher correlation than we've seen from a secular perspective. I guess my point is simply that it depends on how the Fed views these and how those 19 professionals decide to process this data or process this data and then decide to take action. And I actually find it hard to make a bet on that, not knowing the data and then also there's some randomness to their their positioning and their positioning is a bit hard line right now anyway well look this is what um uh, i want i want to hear what i want to hear what uh ahan has to say about all the stuff we've been talking about while he hasn't been here uh, oh yeah um, I'll, I'll, I'll sit back then. go ahead Ahan. <laughs> well why, why don't you uh catch me up a little bit well, we're just we're just as I was saying, it's really difficult to make a lot of predictions with. So I, I think that the distribution has some fat tails right now, and the middle is a little bit emptier. And so you know, just on on everything because we really we don't know this path, and the path is has a lot of dependent items which are strange and different and can have kind of outlier. And then we have the reaction function of those, and so it's just it. I feel like it's harder now. Than it's been previously, but I would love your insight and thoughts on that. I'm I'm happy for you to tell me. No, it's not, Mike. This is butter. <laughs> I wish, but um, I think that what I think that what is particularly hard is that we are at a point where data is conflicting, right? And I think that that is the hallmark of a potential turning point. Right, So we are at a potential turning point for growth data and labor data. We are at a potential turning point for inflation data in the sense that the impulse in inflation data is probably you know less. And we are maybe at a turning point for the conditions for bonds. Right? And so when we're looking at these things, I think that what we have to recognize is that what we're seeing is all the initial conditions for a turning point are being met. And so, you know, some people might couch this in sort of leading indicator terms. But, you know, the way I like to think about leading indicators, so to speak, is that they are things that create the initial conditions and the pass through is not always entirely sure. So if we're thinking about, you know, sales pressures on businesses resulting in employment on, you know, falling, we're not sure about what that pass through is going to be. And so once we've received the initial trigger, for you know, our expectations, we need to wait and we're kind of in this wait and watch situation of are conditions going to develop as we expect them to and as we've kind of tested and understood over time or are we going to be in that outlier situation? And that aspect of it all is where the uncertainty is. It's that we have, you know, we have really heightened nominal economic data, but we have really bad real economic data. We have terrible surveys, but we have really good employment data. We have some components of inflation really high, some components really low. And we have people that are undecided about what the Fed is going to do. One guy says that, you know, Powell is going to be Paul Volcker. The other one says that he's going to be Arthur Burns. And 
we don't know. And the reason we probably don't know is because we are undecided about where exactly we are in the cycle, which just tells me that it's more likely than not we are navigating a turning point. Yeah, I think the uh, Bob Prince um, in his argument was talking about how the Fed is going to have a hard time understanding when they've actually succeeded, right? Because of the lag, he discussed how when the moment you start tightening, it takes around nine to 12 months to see it in growth numbers. But what you really need to happen is to see it in the labor market. And that takes 18 months, right? Problem is if, if growth numbers fall off a cliff, right? They're, they might feel the need to act and realize that, okay, well, we fixed the growth situation for a second, but here we are with inflation again because we never got to kill the, the labor market enough in order to manage inflation. And so this, this lead lag, this, this kind of asymmetric or asynchronous um, areas uh, that they're looking at is going to be a, a, one of the toughest things they've, ever, they've had to navigate in modern times. Um, right. And I think that that's the, the disagreement you highlighted, right, between the, the, the co-CIOs at Bridgewater. I think right. the, the, what we're going to have to figure out is, you know, is the Fed has done the tough talking part, right? But now it's time to walk the walk. And, you know, I don't mean this in any way to be disrespectful of the, of the people at the Fed. I actually think they have really hard jobs and they just try to do the best they can in a given situation. Um, but we're likely to be in a situation where growth is already, it's, you know, based off our tracking, we have growth that in and around less than 1% real, right? So we're, we're very close to a potential contraction, right? And as that contraction gets deeper, you could still have inflationary pressures. And they're going to have to make a choice between which one they're going to want to support. Are they going to say, yeah, it's okay to let the labor market soften. And if that's the case, we probably have a situation where, oh yeah, bonds could catch that bid. But if you have a situation where the Fed comes in and says that, oh, no, we can't, we can't tolerate the labor market being weak at all. We're going to welch on this inflation thing. We have a new inflation target. It's now 4%. We're in a different world, right? In that situation, you probably don't have that bond bid. And, you know, just coming, circling back to the, the, bond, the bond question, right? I think that's a really, like, uh, as we said at the outside, that's the CIO question, right, of the year. Um, I think that the major thing, what we're seeing from data is that it's likely to evolve to be conducive towards bonds. But the hard thing is going to be two things. It's going to be what you need to have a durable bond bid relative to an interim bond bid is you need to have an upward sloping curve, right? The reason you need to have that upward sloping curve is because you need large depository institutions to be able to securely and safely underwrite long-term bonds and make carry. But in the environment we're in, those conditions just don't exist. So when we're actually thinking about, is this going to be a bond trade or a bond investment, air quotes, um, what we probably need to see is a curve which is steep. And that's exactly what happened in the 70s. So if you go back and you look at you know, the transaction data that was available, you can actually see that the, the underwriters of the bond bid in the 70s were large commercial banks. And when they did that, only once you had two things that were amply clear. One, the Fed was done. They were absolutely done. They knew they were done. And we might be in and around that point. But what we don't have 
is we don't have that steepness in the curve. Now, there are two ways you can have that steepness in the curve, right? You can either have, you know, you can have the long end shoot up, which would be terrible, right, for anyone trying to buy bonds right now. Or it would be a situation where you actually have a bull steepener, right? Where you actually have those recession probabilities being priced really aggressively. And because of that, you could actually find your bond bid and that would be a very good situation. And so I think that when it comes to thinking about bonds as, you know, uh, investment in 23, I think the preconditions that need to be met are these. That first, you need to have a Fed that is for sure done on their hiking path. And what they are going to lean on is the duration of holding financial conditions tight. They can keep doing QT, which is not, probably not a good thing. But what they need to be done with is they need to be done hiking completely and they need to be focused on holding conditions tight. The second thing that you need is you need some form of steepness in the curve. And those two things put together, plus whatever economic environment we're in from a growth inflation and liquidity standpoint, is what will determine whether we have a longer term bond bid or it's just going to be a short window before we have a real acceleration of inflation or something like that. Very a lot good. of conditionality right. there. It was awesome. So, yeah. So, so that because of all that, right? Uh-huh, you have like it, we have all these uh, global macro conversations, all these different path dependencies. Ultimately, what I imagine your readers are looking for is when the rubber meets the road. Like, how, how do you make decisions, and you know, what time frames are you going to use in order to invest? How are you, how do you think about that investing problem and actually yeah. extracting some profit from all these metrics? And yeah, uh, I think that's a really important part of the conversation, right? Because I think macro in particular um, is siloed to this very intellectual thing and we can all argue and have views and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, we are trying to figure out how to navigate cycles, right? So um, I think I'll, I'll come back to that framework conversation. And what I'll say is that how we kind of weaponize all of these things is that we go through a three-step three process, right? So we have our fundamental forecasts. And then we have what we call market regime confirmation. And then we have timing overlays, right? So the fundamental forecast is basically a quantified way of this entire conversation that we've had, right? It's us trying to get a picture of what we think about growth, inflation, and liquidity, and how they're going to evolve over the next 6 to 12 months. And that can give us, you know, based off kind of the, the all-weather template, we kind of know which assets we like and which assets we don't like. You know, So in a, stagflationary asset, in a stagflationary world, we probably don't like bonds and we don't like equities. You know, That is one. But what we have to be very cognizant of is the fact that as fundamental forecasts, we're really wrong very often, right? And no matter how good you are, your hit rate is at best, if you're exceptionally good, 60% on fundamental forecasting of any kind. It's a lot. Right? Yeah, it's a lot. That's that if you're the very best, right? <laughs> so um, I think that that and, and that's why we use we 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 built out this market regime confirmation. And what that means is that we go and we look at markets to see whether they are beginning to price the initial stages of what we expect from a fundamental perspective. So just to put that in an example, if we going into 2023 expect deflation. What we want to see is we want to see markets to some extent begin to price that in in cross-asset pricing. So we want to see things like we want to see bonds bid. We want to see break-evens come down. We want to see equities do poorly. We want to see maybe curves invert. We want to see this whole constellation. We want to see a dollar bid. We want to see this constellation of things, which has a lot of conditionality, kind of come together to tell you 
okay, we are maybe in a deflationary environment, which is really just a way of refining your signal, right? And then from there, we go into timing overlays, which is really just our way of trying to pick our spots within a market regime and within a macroeconomic environment. We want to have a good amount of precision in terms of when we're applying these views. So again, using an example, if we think that we are, you know, in a rise, you know, if we're in a stagflationary environment, markets are confirming, we probably don't want to be buying bear market rallies, right? Like that's probably not something that we want to be in. So that's kind of how we think through it. And what we do is we, you know, we have um, a Prometheus ETF portfolio, which goes out every week and positions turnover every week. And we do that for a balanced mix of assets of 37 different ETFs. And every single asset passes through this filter. Right, and then we sum those together, and then we apply portfolio risk control once we've stacked these all together, and that's kind of how we 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 think about weaponizing, you know, the the macro framework. Can I Can just give a little taste to, of where they? Oh, go ahead, Rob. So I just want to go back to the yeah. your your first your fundamental framework, the signals that you get. How often are they updated? Like, how often do you actually get Weekly. inflation? So on a weekly basis, you get enough data on liquidity, on growth and inflation in order to, to update your forecasts. So the, the way we, we do it is, I mean, and it varies by indicator, right? So what we try to do is it's a burden of evidence approach, right? So we're looking across. So if we're looking at growth, right, we can use north of, you know, 30 different releases that come out over the course of the month. And we're basically updating based on every release, right? So say we get, you know, personal consumption data, even though it's lagged, we can, you know, make estimates for the future and things like that. But every day we're getting a new piece of incremental information. And I guess it's uh, though it's kind of like a Schrodinger's cat situation where we only know once it exists. So we kind of treat it like that. And so as we get this new information, we're incrementally every day technically, but we consolidate it down to every week, we're getting new information and we're saying, how has the outlook changed? So we're very much trying to keep a pulse at all times on how can economic conditions are evolving for all these different things. And that's how we kind of go about our forecasting process. So I think that it's also really helpful because it, it improves, it, it, it increases your sample size massively, right? So if you constantly have this, you know, every day we're getting a new data point, new piece of data points, and we, you know, we're adding them together, as opposed to, oh yeah, we have a quarterly outlook or we have a monthly outlook, um, it just avoids the pitfalls of that sudden jump risk in your signals. Exactly right. That's why I was asking. Yeah. It's really tough in macro, uh, fundamental yeah. macro, if you're getting monthly signals to actually ever know whether you have an edge or whether you just got lucky for your lifetime, right? So, yeah, exactly. It's important to get those multiple signals and, and get more uh, more of the law of large numbers on your side. Sorry, Mike, yeah, you had a question. Oh, yeah. I was just wondering, just generally, um, what's the positioning like at the moment? Is it largely, I'm sure you're long RTFs or something. No, not advice, not advice. Not, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that, that's, a, that's our biggest portfolio holding. Um, <laughs> again, to joke. Again, to joke. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, so like, like we said, we, we, we tend to, you know, I think that broadly what we've been expecting is a kind of slowdown in this inflation volatility, 
And we expect, you know, on a cyclical basis, a bit of a slowdown. And so the positions we have on this week and our positions turn over weekly are a little bit inconsistent with which you would think as a thematic kind of view. But we actually have um, stocks and bonds on together as a bet on a mild bit of disinflation, which would have been great this week. Um, but um, we'll see how that kind of pans out more broadly. I think the way we're looking at things is that the environment is probably less conducive to stocks, more conducive to bonds, and pretty neutral on on a fundamental basis for commodities going forward. And so that's kind of how we're thinking about asset class kind of positioning. But yeah, for the so next week, how, we're looking how at- How are you seeing sort of the, the cash component given, you know, you, you're seeing, I guess, obviously some- uh, attenuation of the correlation of stocks and bonds. So you're pairing them together to likely yeah. get, or, or are you seeing correlation and, and bowing up? So you're positioned right. in that way. So I guess given your earlier comments about how correlations are changing and just uh, on a stock bond portfolio, by definition, you would have some cash given the correlation of these two assets. So how are you feeling about the overall positioning of the portfolio? Is it sort of large in the context of historic exposures or is it a little bit smaller, sort of a confidence interval, if you will? Right. So I think the cash thing is very important. And, you know, like as research providers, you kind of start from a place of, you know, you want to you want you you want you want to do no harm and give people options, right? So I think that when it comes to the environment that we're in, right, the potential for jump risk in correlations is extremely high, right? So when you think about the environment that we're in, one of tightening liquidity, cross asset correlations can go to one really quickly, right? Because you have that balanced mix of assets, which is supposed to be working in line with the economic cycle is suddenly shocked by these, you know, tightening liquidity pulses. And as a result, your, you know, the, the correlation benefit that you're expecting doesn't actually pan out. So the approach we take, given that we can be at times very concentrated, like sometimes we can have only commodity positions on, right? We can deviate from balance quite a bit is we, we focus on kind of what is our, you know, our, our drawdown and what is our max vol, right? So what we're trying to basically manage for is a condition where, okay, what if we have no correlation benefit in the portfolio at all? What would be our loss and what kind of drawdowns would we sustain then? And in this kind of environment, what we've seen is that typically on an individual asset basis also, you actually need less risk exposure to achieve your vol targets, right? Because the because you have so much dispersion in these assets, you as a you you tend to actually need way less exposure in this environment. So we've actually probably over the last four four months or so, we've had between fifty and thirty percent cash, and that actually gets us to like a realized vol of approximately eight annualized. We try to do a max vol of ten, right? And that's really, I think, just a hallmark of the time. You're going to end up having cash if you're trying to manage this kind of jump risk in correlations. That's well man. said. I think that's just man, oh man. so important. When, that th those are great hear, words. Whoever's those are listening great words. to that, we so, come to the same conclusion. You know, provide yeah. a low, medium volatility portfolio because that's what yeah. everybody will want. And yeah. I just, you know, this is just a side note on on just portfolio construction and and. Uh, and model generation for retail and even institutional investors. It's so funny to me how 
we we all landed that fall target, right? That eight to ten, and we just yeah. minimized the drawdown and blah blah blah. But the vast majority of assets today, I would say the average portfolio construction is not sixty forty. I'd say the average mm -hmm. portfolio construction is eighty twenty, and that twenty is not government bonds, right? That twenty is yeah. some sort of obscure income product that's that really ends up being one hundred percent growth driven assets in people's portfolios. And when you're competing against that as a model provider of eight ball, yeah. it, it's just really tough. Like you could have, if the volatility of that portfolio is 16, 20 ball, right? You're, you're eight, they could have half the sharp ratio that you do yeah, and perform just as well as you do. And, you know, and somehow that's, that's kind of how it works. Okay 30 to 40% drawdowns, but they're <laughs> not okay with a 20% drawdown in, in a low volatility portfolio. It's just, I it's think, one of those, I like, the, not, it's really, really tough. I think they're actually, they're not okay actually living through the drawdown. So they think they're okay living through a 30% drawdown, but then they have to live through the 30% drawdown. And then, you know, they're, it's, they're running around with their hairs on fire, right? And I think that, so when it comes to volatility, and this is actually something we're, 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 we're developing and working on, which is, I think that managing for this max max vol kind of expectation which is you know kind of consistent with managing drawdown right um there is like an asymmetry to it right because if you think about it i know that you guys have probably lived this experience of running a moderate vol portfolio in a time where equities are roofing and you're just going well we have really great shop ratios right and it's tough. Um, you know, I, I have experience working with people in, in, in a similar kind of situation that, you know, that originated the RPAR ETF, right? Oh, yeah, yep. you're, familiar, you're quite familiar with them. Yes, um, for sure. And, Alex you know, and yeah, Alex and Shahidi Damien, and um, yeah. my, first, my first boss. Um, oh, there you go. I, I interned for them uh, a, a long time ago. Yeah. So, um, well done. yeah. And uh, basically, they had a similar situation where they were generating very good risk-adjusted returns, but you know the problem is that you don't look that good when you are generating a, relative, a, a good ratio because people on an absolute basis are just performing so well. But I think that the thing that we're trying to work through is that this achievement of max vol usually comes during con certain economic conditions. And so what we're trying to move towards now is kind of expanding a band of max vol relative to just, you know, consistently managing for the same max vol. I don't know what your guys' experience is. I see Rodrigo yeah. nodding, so we I feel like... Lots, uh, lots to say about that. I mean, we went yeah. through a, a long period of... Because when you think about systematic investing like we do, right? You go through many stages. In the beginning, you start with, okay, you know, there's a, a, a bunch of factors that we could invest in. And, you know, the old empirical finance approach is one of, we don't know whether the edge changes through time, right? And so if we don't know, we're just going to assume that we're going to get it right. We're going to have a 54% win rate every single time we place a bet. And if that's true, then having a volatility target is perfectly fine, right? Because you, you're, right. you're getting consistent bets and, you, and you're assuming your sharp ratio is the same over time and you can hit that volatility target all the time and get a consistent return. But the reality is that as we have evolved, we find that, no, indeed, the edge changes over time. And the problem there is if you have a very small edge and you're leaving it up to your volatility target, mm -hmm. that's a problem. And if right. you have a very large edge and you can measure that, and you're limiting your upside because you've, you've yeah. mapped, you capped out your volatility target, right? So I think the evolution of thought on our end is when there's a good bet, put the pedal to the metal, 
you know, yeah. within bounds. And when there's a poor bet, bring down the volatility. You can actually, you'll do much better that way. And, yeah. and, and maybe even compete with an equity market at a lower volatility. So I, I'm with you on that. Uh, we, I think we all are in our evolution of thinking there. Yeah, I, I actually, I think that one thing when it comes to specifically like volatility targeting as opposed to being like in sort of a volatility band is that the thing that I've often wrestled with um, is that that volatility targeting is implicitly a bet in itself, right? That you're able to optimally estimate what your, you know, your, your exposed or your, 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 your T plus one um, ball is going to be. And that's actually pretty hard, right? Especially when you have a lot of, you have a lot of assets in your portfolio, you don't know how the correlations are going to move. So I I think that the, the thing that we, you know, our edge is definitely not in doing that. Right? Like, our, like our edge is in understanding what kind of environment we're in and managing responsibly within that kind of environment. And so the way that we're looking at it is to look at, okay, what kind of situation would we be okay exposing ourselves to more vol in if we have a good understanding that we're in a certain economic environment, which is conducive to more vol in these jump conditions? Right. No. Yeah, I like that. I like that framework. I mean, one of my biggest pet peeves is the whole bet with, between, this is on ball sizing, yeah. the bet between Warren Buffett and Ted Sadie's of, I uh, can't remember what the company uh, was, but uh, I had we had Ted Sadie's long ago on the podcast okay. and the sharp ratio was outstanding during that 10-year bet. The volatility. I'm, I'm actually not volatility. familiar with this. Oh, it was a bet between a fund of funds manager um, mm. and Warren Buffett, a million dollar bet that would go to charity. And the fund of funds manager said that fund funds and, and hedge funds warm the S&P 10 years. And it said, absolutely not. The S&P is going to win. So <laughs> bet goes on. Money's in escrow. 10 years go by. Not, on the ninth year, I think it was the ninth year, the fund of funds is winning because it's 08. But mm-hmm. or 09. And then 09 and 010 have, and 2010 happen. And the S&P comes roaring back. And, and Warren Buffett wins the bet. Now, <laughs> what's the the volatility of the fund of funds portfolio is five. Volatility yeah. of the S&P is 16 to 20 during that period. Had you vol-sized the fund of funds to the same volatility as equities, it would have crushed it, right? So these are these yeah. are the things that bother me about the, um, the S&P being such a dominant asset class, low sharp ratio, high volatility. Many people are willing to bet their life savings on it. And maybe 20% make the wrong decisions at the wrong time. But a lot of them stick around to, to uh, realize it. But again, you're not, pay- you're not getting paid for the risk you're taking on that concentrated bet. Whereas more thoughtful portfolio construction, you know, you can have a great sharp ratio. But you're kind of not allowed as an industry to offer this at... 18 ball, 20 ball. It's just too, yeah. it's just not, not palatable because that'll, that'll lead to big drawdowns uh, and it'll be drawdowns that are non uh, asynchronous to the equity market. So how can you be losing 20% when the markets are up 40? Well, that's, that's, you know, it's a non-correlation is like, anyway, that's my rant for the day. Um, I don't know. I don't know if any, anything's going to change. So we're going to have to keep on trying to provide that four sharp uh, at eight ball, right? Uh-huh. <laughs> Always <laughs> aspiring for the four sharp. Everyone is, right? <laughs> awesome. Well, okay. Well, I th- we've, we've been here for an hour and 25 minutes and it's been very gracious uh, of you, uh, Ahan. I wonder, let's wrap with you letting everybody know where they can find you again, making sure that they can uh, 
look at uh, signing up and, and getting in touch with you for you and uh, Prometheus for your research, et cetera. And we'll wrap from there. Yeah. Um, well, I just want to thank you guys again for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. Like I said, I have always appreciated your guys' approach and content. So um, it's really been great to chat with you guys live. Um, for, for those that are looking for um, more stuff on Prometheus, you can find us at Prometheus Macro on Twitter. You can find us at Prometheus Research on Substack. And you can find us on our website at Prometheus-Research.com. And Han, just quickly, who's your, your target audience for your research? We are primarily aimed at retail audiences, but the way we've constructed things is it should be scalable to almost all investors, right? Like we're trying to reach the broadest possible audience that we can um, and trying to basically play for a little bit of a leveling of the field in terms of providing institutional quality macro resources to, a gen to the general public. And the ETF, the fact you mentioned that it was an ETF framework, that probably means it's a long only or long flat type of strategy, we, right? No, no. We're very tactical on the short side, extremely. It's not an op it's definitely not the optimal framework to have shorts on, but in years like this, it can be it can be value additive to have shorts on, um, just from a diversification perspective. So we it's kind of asymmetrical in the sense that we are more accepting of long exposures and just very tactical. And if we only expect good payoffs on the short side that, you know, those positions are entered. So it's long short, but for the most part, you will be long. Yeah. Understood. All right. Beautiful. Thanks on for your time. Have an awesome weekend. Thanks. Jets. And uh, we'll, we'll Great bring weekend. you back here again in a few months. I'm sure. Absolutely. Take care guys. Cue the music on. Thank you for listening to the Gestalt University podcast. You will find all the information we highlighted in this episode by visiting investresolve.com forward slash podcasts. We also encourage you to engage with us on Twitter by searching the handle at investresolve. If you're enjoying the series, please take the time to share us with your friends through email or social media. And if you really learned something new and believe that this podcast would be helpful to others, we would be incredibly grateful if you could leave us a review on iTunes. Thanks again and see you next time. Most investors feel comfortable with their domestic equity and bond portfolios because they tend to thrive during periods of economic growth and low inflation. And we don't blame you. It's been a great ride. But it's a big world out there full of opportunities you may be ignoring. Sadly, we live in a world dominated by a fear of missing out, or FOMO. And in the last 10 years, U.S. equities and bonds have outperformed and generated massive amounts of FOMO. This hasn't always been the case. In the mid-2000s, the best-performing markets were international equities, especially emerging markets, golden commodities. So what happens if growth collapses and inflation becomes the new norm? Or what if the U.S. dollar collapses and U.S. assets are no longer attractive? What will the new FOMO markets be? And will your portfolio keep up or be left behind? Enter Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund, ticker RDMIX, a strategy that is designed to thrive across different markets and economic regimes. Unlike most traditional strategies that keep allocation static and let volatility happen, adaptive asset allocation applies a proprietary systematic process designed to dynamically transition toward thriving asset classes and eliminate those that are not all the while aiming for consistent volatility and stable returns. There's almost always a bull market somewhere in the world. Don't let yesterday's FOMO get in the way of tomorrow's opportunities. 
Instead, let adaptive asset allocation help you fill in your domestic portfolio gaps. To learn more, visit rationalmf.com and check out the Rational Resolve Adaptive Asset Allocation Fund.